So there is a woman in our church who actually works in forensics. And I found out about this because she's in the group Nicole and I host on Tuesday nights with some different couples from the church. And when I found out she worked in this field, I just couldn't help myself. So after one of our groups, she's hanging out at the house. I said, okay, I need a story. If you work in forensics, I know you got some stories. And let me just say this. She did not disappoint. She told me all sorts of crazy, insane, nasty stuff. It was like a total CSI episode. It was unreal. I couldn't even imagine working in a field like that with all the stuff she's seen. And it was a day or two after this group, I did something really strange. I, I, I texted her and I said, I have a weird question for you, okay? I promise I'm going somewhere with this. And I texted her and I said, how do you know if somebody's dead? <laughs> I know that's a weird text to get from your pastor, right? <laughs> Strange. And I said, I promise I'm going somewhere with this, but how do you actually know, like, as a forensic scientist, and I, I didn't know what I was asking, because she proceeded to send me an entire college essay on how you actually understand the dynamics of the human body. And she went on all these different levels of blood flow and breathing and then brainstem and pupil dilation, and I was, like, totally confused. I was like, okay, had no idea. And thankfully, she knew she was dealing with me, so she's like, let me just make this very simple for you, Brian. Let me summarize what I'm saying. She said, if there's no heartbeat, there's no pulse. And if there's no pulse, there's no life. She said, it's really that simple. And that actually is the perfect setup for the passage we're going to be in today. In James chapter 2, verse 14, let me read it to you guys. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Today we're going to take some time. We're going to talk about no pulse faith today. Now, this is actually the most famous section in James' entire letter. It is the crux of the whole message. Everything else revolves around this one little section in his whole letter. And actually, this very section inspired the name of this series that we're calling Bringing Faith to Life. Because as we're reading this passage as a teaching team, we're like, well, the dead thing doesn't seem very good. Maybe we should do the other thing then instead. So this is what the whole series is. is how do we bring our faith to life? Give it real vitality have a pulse to our faith. And this is the case that James is making, a very strong run. It is possible to claim you have faith, to believe in your own mind that you have a living, active relationship with God. And in reality, your faith is as good as a corpse. It's got no pulse. And it really is no faith at all. And there's actually some really cool nuance to this. When James says your faith is dead, you know what that idea of dead really means in the Greek? It actually means dead. That's exactly what it means. It means dead. There's, that's literally what it means. Just this flat out straight talk from James. And he says the way you actually check your pulse when it comes to your spiritual life, the way you see if there's vitality and blood flowing through the veins of somebody's soul is that there will be deeds, works, action that accompanies this faith. It is the air in the lungs of a true believer. I heard somebody say it this way. Workless faith is worthless faith. No value, no good, 
no pulse, completely dead. Now, you may not know this, but this is actually considered one of the more controversial passages in the entire Bible. So controversial that Martin Luther, the famous reformer, actually resisted teaching on or talking about or even addressing this passage his entire ministry. He wasn't even sure if it should be in the Bible. And the reason so many people have had problems with this passage for thousands of years now is because it kind of feels like it contradicts some other parts of the Bible. Now, let me kind of set this up for you so we can see where we're going with this. Paul in Romans 3, he says this, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Okay, makes sense. But then James, in a few verses we're going to read, he says this, You see that a person is justified by works. <laughs> And not by faith alone. So I'm glad we cleared this up. The Bible's full of contradictions. It's not true. It doesn't work. Let's just close this thing up, all right? Save ourselves some time. Now, there's actually some nuance here. Let's go down this road a little bit. Now, I want you to understand. A fundamental conviction of Christianity is that you are saved by faith alone. There is nothing you can do to contribute to God's saving work in your life. And James and Paul were even friends in real life. They knew each other personally. They support each other's work. So why this apparent contradiction? Why does it seem like they're saying literally the opposite thing in letters that are in the same Bible? Now think about it this way. We often use the same word and yet can mean different things when we say it. So let me do a, a mental exercise for you. When I say this word, you're going to think of something. Rock. Now you just thought of something in your mind, right? How many people thought of this in their minds right here? You just thought of a stone. Did that come to your mind immediately? Probably most people, right? That's what went through your mind. Now you think about it though, context can kind of change a little bit. You could have thought of like rock music, for example. Can you believe Mick Jagger's 80 years old? How in the world? I, I do not understand it all. That dude is still rocking out. Rock music though, you could be thinking of like, hey, a compliment, you rock. Or maybe you rock in a shirt. Some of you guys maybe are rocking a baby right now. But you might even think of like a title or name. You might've been thinking of The Rock, Mr. Dwayne Johnson. Maybe that's what came to your mind. So it's interesting. One word based on how it's used can mean so many different things. And when we talk about this word justified, this is a really important word in the Bible. It actually can be used in some different ways, even by some of its writers. So on one level, we can talk about justified meaning to be made right. So we talk about justifying a debt. When you pay off a debt, you actually have justified it. You made it right. But there's also another meaning that justified can have to prove something is right. So if I were to tell you today, In-N-Out Burger is overrated. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I screw that. Some of you might say, hold up, prove it. Justify that statement, Brian, because I'm about to die on that hill, all right? You Californians, I know you love your In-N-Out Burger. It is overrated, by the way. It is overrated. Okay, we all know it. My kids are at a funny age right now. They're at the age where they are learning how to swim. Okay, we're in that season of life right now doing the swimming lessons. It is so funny to me how people's personalities come out when they just get near some water. Okay, my daughter Brinley thinks she is an Olympian swimmer. She doesn't understand that she swims about as well as a rock, though. She goes right to the bottom the minute she's in the water. But she is so confident. If I get in the water to catch her, she's like, back it up, Dad. Back it up. Ten more feet. I'm like 20 feet away from this girl. I'm like, girl, you, you aren't going to make it. This isn't going to work. She wants to take her floaties off all the time because she doesn't think she needs them. And it's actually a problem. This girl's way too overconfident in herself. Now, my son, Easton, 
He is the total first child. We literally show up at a pool and he's like, I need to see all the dimensions and metrics of this pool. Where's the layout and the plans? Has the chemical treatments happened in this pool yet? Because I want to make sure I'm not jumping in until this has happened. And God, Dad, if you don't catch me, I will murder you because I'm watching. And he's just super intense about the entire pool experience. And it was so bad for a while, we could not get this guy to jump in the pool. Like he just would not do it. I'd be sitting there just standing. And what was so weird to me though was I would ask him to his face. I'd say, Easton, do you believe I can catch you? Like, yeah, I'm like, do, do you think my muscles can handle your little 20 pound body? And be like, oh, no, no, you got this, dad. I'm like, then jump. And he would just stand there and stare at me. Now he can say all day that he believes in me and has confidence in my ability to catch him. But until you make the leap, you don't actually believe it. That is not a living faith in your father. And this is exactly what James is saying. He's like, until you put some action to the thing, it's not even really a thing. And so Paul is using it on the first sense. Paul's saying we are justified by the work of Jesus on the cross. That's how we're saved, his saving work for us. But James uses it in the second sense. He says, the way you know you have real faith, the way you justify it in your life, you prove it's real, is that it will have a pulse it will lead to real action in your life. I heard a theologian say it this way. We are saved by faith alone. But that faith never stays alone. So James knows this is a little bit of a controversial idea. Like this is a hard thing for us to process sometimes, especially with the way we normally think about faith. And so he actually addresses some of the issues. Verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. So he's given a hypothetical debate. He's like, I know what some of you are thinking. Like, why are we so obsessed with how these things are connected? Like, can't somebody just have some faith and then somebody can kind of live a good life? Like, why does this have to be such an issue, James? And James is pushing back. He's saying, well, understand, I'm not saying that faith is unimportant. Like, you don't need it. It's all about the works. But I'm also not saying that works are essential to faith. James is saying works are evidence of faith. They are evidence. And so if you say you can have faith with no action, James is like, great, prove it. Oh, wait, you can't. And so I'll show you my faith by the way I actually live. There's uh, Ascent Classical Academy is meeting in our church right now. This great charter school. Love having them. It's been an awesome experience. There's some young female teachers that teach at this school. And some of these young teachers were in the break room one day, and I came in, I was coming to heat up my food, and they're talking about a particular male interest in one of these girls' lives. And they're discussing this particular male figure and talking about how he has failed to define the relationship in this situation. Okay, so this girl is saying, I don't know where he stands. Is he into me? Is he not into me? He's not even communicating. Where's this relationship going? I am 30 years old. I ain't got time to wait around for this guy to figure out what he wants to do with his life. So she starts complaining about this guy. And she had this moment of frustration. She said, you know what the problem is? He's all talk. She's like, he's all talk. That's the problem with this dude. Now, I was not invited into this conversation. But I felt like that was my opportunity to insert myself in this moment. So I said, I said, ladies, 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 you just got to understand something. Okay. Let, let me help give you some pastoral wisdom. I said, 
men are annoying. <laughs> they are. They're just a problem. They're very frustrating. And I was trying to comfort with that. Now, <laughs> you can say you love somebody. You can say that the relationship is genuine. But if there's no real action in that relationship, it's all talk. You can say you're serious about your faith. You can say Jesus means something to you, but if there's no real activity around those claims, there's no pulse. You're just talking. Real faith will always come with real action. And so James is actually now going to move into clearing up some confusion about this. And this might be interesting to some of us. Maybe there'll be some new insight into it. And I figure since we're talking about forensics and pulse and all that, we'll lean into some of that. Okay, we'll lean into So we're going to talk about insufficient evidence of living faith. There are things that we think are proof of a genuine faith. And James is about to make the case that they're actually not enough. So look what he says in verse 19. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. I had a roommate in college. I just went to a big state school. You know, this wasn't a Christian university or anything like that. And we would have some conversations about God. He had no interest in church or any of those things. And so we'd constantly have some back and forths. And one day we were having just a little bit of a friendly spiritual debate. And at one point he pushed back on me. He said, Brian, you got to understand, I do believe in God. And I don't know if I just had a Holy Spirit inspired moment of clarity or whatever, but I didn't miss a beat. I said, so does the devil. And he went, that's a really good point, actually. I never really thought about it that way. And I don't usually have those moments, so I felt pretty proud of myself. That was a pretty good singer right there in that moment, okay? But this is actually exactly what James is saying. And the first insufficient piece of evidence, James says, of a real living faith is the right beliefs. Now, follow me here. James says, oh, you believe in God. Awesome. You believe in the right God. There's one God. But, um... Yeah, so do demons. That is actually not enough to prove a genuine faith. And think about just the argument James is making here. If you read through the Bible, the way we understand demons is that they are actually fallen angels. So these demons have been in the throne room of God. They have better theology than any person here. They know who God is. They know what he's able to do. They understand his power and his majesty. And even though they have the right beliefs about who God is, they still resist and reject him. There is a dynamic in the New Testament that I think should sober us a lot more than it usually does. And if you read through the life of Jesus, he encounters these people called Pharisees at different times in his ministry. These were the most influential, powerful religious leaders of the day. They would have had the first five books of the Bible memorized word for word at least. And they led religious services. They led prayer. They set the standard for religion at the time. And Jesus has one conversation with them at one point. And he says, you think God is your father, but actually Satan is your dad. You don't have real faith. That should give us some pause. These guys had really good theology. And yet Jesus even said, that really doesn't show it. You can have strong theology in your mind, but if it hasn't moved itself to your heart, leading to real transformation in your life, it's not a confirmation of a real pulse. 
Now, there's another level here too, though. It's not just the right beliefs. James says it's also the right respect. Did you see what he said? He said, oh yeah, the demons believe in God too, and they shudder. They are so aware of the reality of God that it leads to a visceral response for them. They don't just believe. They have a healthy respect for who God is. And you know, there's plenty of people who do believe in God and even have a certain awareness and respect and reverence for God's power and his abilities and what he can do. And yet at the end of the day, it's just shuddering. Nicole and I have a very close friend this lady, for years we've been doing life together, love her and her family. And there have been so many times I've invited her here to Northern Hills. I said, why don't you just come check it out? I'll sit right by you. It's great. It's going to be an awesome experience. Come on Easter. Come on Christmas. And I've tried, 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 tried. And she, every single time she's resisted. No, no, it's just not for me. And finally, the most recent time she kind of pushed back. She said, Brian, you got to understand something. I'm not coming because I'm afraid that if I cross the threshold of Northern Hills, God is going to do something very bad to me. She's like, I, I don't know if I'm going to get struck by lightning or if he's going to make me sick or I'm just going to like drop dead or something. And I was like, oh my goodness. Like she is 100% serious. And I wanted to tell her, hey, you are not going to get struck by lightning. I think I'm pretty sure mostly as far as I can tell that has not happened yet. But she is dead serious. Like she does believe in God on some level. And she even understands the power of God on some level. She knows what he can do. But at the end of the day, for her, it's just shuddering. This is not the type of faith that can really do anything for her. There is no actual pulse in her life. And so this is the nuance here. A person with saving faith will have the right beliefs. Will have some of the right respect and reverence for God. But... James says, having these things is not necessarily a sign of saving faith. It's not sufficient evidence. Now, who's terrified right now? <laughs> is everybody like, wow, Brian, okay. I've been going to church 45 years, and I'm not even sure if I'm a Christian anymore. So let's flip the coin now. Thankfully, James turns a quarter now, and he's like, okay, let's talk about some positive signs now. Well, let's talk about how you really know that you have a genuine faith. So let's take a minute. Let's talk about true evidence of living faith. True evidence. Starting in verse 20, he says, You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So what is the first sign of true evidence of your real living faith? We see that it is a pulse for God. It is to have a pulse for God. Now, James is referencing a famous moment in history recorded in the Old Testament where Abraham is asked an impossible thing of God to sacrifice his own son. Now, that should make you very uncomfortable. You should not be okay with that. And as we see the story play out, we see that this was never really something God actually intended Abraham to do. And I can't go into all the nuances, but this event ends up being a small picture of what God would ultimately truly do for us in Jesus, that he really would give his son on our behalf 
for our own salvation. And I can't go into every level of this. I preached that entire story in a series called Take the Lid Off earlier this year, part six. If you really want to understand the nuances of that crazy scripture, you can check that out. But here's what James is trying to say with it. He's saying, you got to see, Abraham trusted God with everything, even his own son. And the way you know Abraham had real, genuine saving faith is that it worked its way all the way down to the veins of his soul and even down to the very knife in his hands. And Abraham had such a trust in God that this was more than just having the right beliefs. James says Abraham was God's friend. Think about those words. Abraham and God were friends. Do you have a best friend? Do you have a best friend right now? Like, could, can you think of somebody in your mind? My, my best friend is actually a guy named Patrick Eulitz. We met in the second grade as seven-year-olds in Miss Secor's class. And from the day we met, we were just attached at the hip. We did every single boy thing you could imagine together, fishing, skateboarding, snowboarding. We even were in drumline together all the way through growing up, the same soccer team all the way through childhood. We literally did every single thing together. We were in each other's weddings even. And truly, you know you got a best friend when you just have random pictures like this on your phone of each other. I don't know why I have those pictures. I don't know what we were doing. I don't know why I'm showing you those right now. That's just how you know you got a best friend. You just got weird pictures with each other. Now, Patrick and I, even to this day, just to have a text conversation going back and forth, we talk all the time. Like, we are just best friends. I love Patrick. Like, I would do anything for this guy. He could ask anything of me, even a hard thing, because he's my friend. Jesus said this in John 14. If you love me, you will obey my commands. Jesus is saying, if we're really friends, if you really understand our relationship in this way and how much I love you, the evidence will be that you do what I ask you to do. Because you trust me. You trust this relationship. It's genuine. And Abraham loved God. He trusted his friend even to the point of doing a very hard thing. And that's how you know he had a pulse. Is God your friend? I know some people say, oh man, God, he is Lord. He is savior. He is the king. I don't know. I understand all that stuff, but is he your friend? Like has your relationship with God moved past the point of just a transactional relationship where you just ask him for stuff? or to fix the problems in your life? Do you just love him for him? Do you enjoy him? I've now been walking with God for 23 years. That's when I first became a Christian. And you know, one of the sweetest things about now having walked with God, now going on decades, is actually the friendship. And it gets better and better as the years go on. It gets deeper and deeper. It gets more profound. And I love God. I respect God. But you know what? I like God. I just like him. I like hanging out with him. I just go for walks and chat it up with God. If he's driving my car, talking to him, like he is my closest companion. He's my friend. God wants to be your friend. 
and he is the best friend you will ever have. Do you love him? Do you have a pulse for him? Has your relationship with God led to actual sacrificial acts of obedience? Hard things. Is God able to ask you to do something you don't want to do and you still do it because he's your friend? Are you willing to move out of your own comfort and preferences for your friend? That's the sign of a pulse, James says. You love your friend and you'll do what he wants you to do. Now there's one other piece of evidence here. It's not just a pulse for God. It's also a pulse for people. James gives one other quicker illustration here. He says this, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Again, another reference to a moment in history in the Old Testament. The entire nation of Israel is right on the cusp of the promised land. And they encounter Jericho, this massive fortified city. And um, Joshua sends some spies right in there to check out the area. And these spies end up staying at this lady Rahab's house who just so happens to be a prostitute. Now she becomes so confident in the God these men are representing that she makes him her God as well. She starts to develop a pulse for God. But her heart starts to beat not just for God, but also for people. Because Rahab, at the risk of her own life, protects the lives of these spies. Could you imagine if this city found out that she was helping the enemy? She would have been tossed off the wall as an example. And yet, she goes on and takes this risk. And if you don't know the story of Rahab, she actually ends up being in the very lineage of Jesus himself. She's a great, 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 grandma of Jesus. This is a powerful woman in the Bible. And this is what James is using her as an illustration of real faith will lead to sacrificial acts of love, not just for God, but for other people. James is like, I don't even care if you're coming out of a life of prostitution or whatever stuff you have going on. When God comes into your heart, it will transform you to where you will love him deeply, but you will have a love for other people that will lead to change in your own actions and behaviors towards them. And so he brings it to a total close here. He says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. How do you know if you have a real spiritual pulse in your life? You will love God. You will love him deeply. It will be a true friendship, an intimate relationship that grows over the course of your life. And it will show in your actions. But you will also love people. You will have a heart for the people in your life. And it will show through tangible, sacrificial acts of service and care and generosity and kindness. That is genuine faith, James says. It is alive. It has a pulse. It will move through the very veins of your soul. Now, this sets us up for an opportunity I do not want us to miss. We cannot just pass over this. Paul in 2 Corinthians challenges us with this statement. He says, examine yourselves and see whether you are in the faith. It is possible to believe in your own mind that you have a genuine faith. And yet there's really no pulse. 
And so that's why Paul says, you got to examine yourself. Where is the evidence in your life of real faith? I love what this other pastor says, John Tyson. He says, how you live is what you believe. Everything else is just talk. What does your life say about what you believe? Really? Like how you spend your time? What would that say about what you believe? What would people say if they saw how you spent your time? Your priorities. How do people interpret what's really important to you based on how you prioritize your own life? How do you really treat the people around you? What if you were to look at your budget and how you spend money? Would that show any indication of a heartbeat for God or even other people? How do you treat your own body and steward that, what God has entrusted to you? This is the question we got to wrestle with, everybody. Is my faith a living faith? Now, it doesn't mean you're perfect and you have your whole life figured out, but do you see in your life a progression towards real, tangible action that aligns with the heart of God? Now, some of you right now, you might actually be feeling a little nervous. You're like, my whole life I thought I was a Christian, and now it's all getting torn apart in one sermon. What am I supposed to believe right now? And I'm sure probably some of you, the, the more type A people in this room, you know, the color coders and the checklist people, you're like, Brian, just tell me what to do, okay? What are the actions? I will do all of them. Just tell me so I can feel good by the end of the sermon. And I just want to stop that response right now. I, I want to stop that because I don't think that's the way God wants us to go right now. Now, if you do feel a little, little uncomfortable about this, that might be a very good sign shows that you're taking this seriously, that this is really important to you. But I have to make sure that you don't leave your thinking the point of this sermon was, hey, make sure you now just go do a bunch of stuff so you can ease your conscience and think God is happy with you. Paul is very clear in Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Hear me. Works are not an addition to faith. You don't just believe and now you got to go do all this stuff to make God happy. No, they are an expression of faith. They will flow out of your life if you have a genuine pulse for God. So let's take an honest look. Let's examine ourselves. Is there a pulse in your soul? Some of the people I would love to talk to you might be brave enough to say, you know what, Brian? I'm not really sure there is. You might be more casual just in your Christianity. That's very common in our culture. And it's a little bit of a sentimental thing. It's kind of just like fire insurance for you. Maybe it's just on the holidays thing. But it's, it's not a, a real thing. It's really not directing your life. There's no genuine friendship with God. And this is an opportunity to really now for all of us to come to God and say, God, examine my heart. Where am I really at with you? Like, do I have a pulse? Are there areas in my life that are dying or even just dead? And let's invite God in. Say, God, if I don't have a pulse, will you give me a living faith today? Will you bring it to life? Will you let me experience that real friendship you want us to have? And will you really transform me even the way I live out my life? And I, we're actually going to create space for that to happen. We're actually going to share in communion today as a church. And this is just a perfect response, I think, because it is designed to actually be a self-examination experience. If you guys are new, just how communion works, Jesus himself instituted this practice. On the night he was betrayed, he took some bread. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take this in remembrance of me.
In the same way he took a cup, he said, this is my blood which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Take this in remembrance of me. And as we take communion, we're not just declaring and reminding ourselves that Jesus died for us, that we can't earn our salvation. We're reminded of the fact that we even believe he is gonna return one day and we have faith and we trust in that hope. And so you have space now during communion where you can just sit and take a moment with God and say, God, examine my heart. Where am I really at with you? Do I really believe this, that Jesus died for me? That this is a moment of remembering? Do I really believe it? Is it really impacting my life? And maybe for some of us, as you take community, it is just a fresh declaration of no. My faith is alive. I'm putting all my hope in this. I, I, I'm staking it all on Jesus. Maybe for some of us, this is just a fresh new vitality in your faith. You're like, God, bring it to life in me. I don't want to just have a go through the motions faith, a cultural Christianity. I, I want a real friendship. And you might be new here, know that you don't need to be some special member or take some class to take communion. You are welcome to, to participate. But if this is something you don't want to do, then don't feel any pressure. Feel free to stay in your seat. Make this a moment of reflection. Ask yourself, where do I stand with God? What do I believe? Where am I at? People are going to be moving around, so nobody's going to be put on the spot. But just to help the flow of it, I, I have not explained it well every week. So we actually create a little chart here to help the flow. So here's how we'll try to help if we could walk, okay? Because <laughs> I have not done a good job of helping this. So hopefully this makes it easy. There'll be two stations for all the middle people. Just go to the one that has a shorter line. And on the ends, you'll have one in each corner. And you can take the bread and the cup and you can go back to your seat. Take a moment with God. We're going to create some space here with the worship team. And then we'll come back and sing. But feel free to respond in any way that is appropriate for you. So I'm going to dismiss this right now. And let's share in communion, church. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. If you would like to learn more about Northern Hills, you can go to nhills.org. You can also follow us online on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram for more updates and events. We look forward to seeing you next week.